0: Welcome to Sear Week Conversations. a new video and podcast series bringing you insights with impact into energy, economics and a changing world in the COVID-19 era. I'm your host, Dan Jurgen.: Hello, I'm Dan Jurgen, and I want to welcome you to the Sear Week conversation presented by IHS Market with Vicki Holub, who's the CEO. Of Occidental Petroleum. Uh, we're very pleased to be talking with you, Vicki. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you. It's good to be here. So, I thought we would talk both about uh, the basically, talk about oil, and then we'll talk about carbon and, uh, and the major new steps that Oxy is taking to manage ca- carbon in an integrated way. But we'll certainly start with uh, oil and start by asking you just to stand back and say, how has the pandemic affected the oil and gas industry?
1: I think the price war combined with the pandemic brought our industry to its knees, but we're we a resilient industry. And when we get knocked down, we get back up with more determination to be successful. And these sorts of things always seem to drive innovation and ingenuity in our industry. So while uh, we get knocked down, we don't get knocked out. And I really think that, um, that in addition to finding new ways to create value and to lower our cost. I think that this will also drive um, a different kind of scenario into our uh, planning process. And I, I think all of us might have a pandemic scenario from here on out. Right. Uh, I think what that might do then is, uh, is have people uh, doing uh, a lot more uh, lower risk kinds of M&A and acquisitions, uh, more like the smaller ones that we're seeing happening today and even some more mergers of equals.
0: Have you, Is it too soon to know how it will change your operations, whether people in the office or uh, in the field and digitalization?
1: I think that it's starting to have an impact. I think we're working very diligently to figure out what's the best way to manage our workforce now. I think that we don't need uh, the entire workforce in the office all the time. And we are working toward trying to figure out how that is going to look long-term, and how, what does it do to our efficiencies um, and our, our uh, culture. Culture is the thing that I worry the most about. I think that it's really important for the teams to have some time together and to, um, to have that brainstorming opportunity where you just walk down the hall and you have a conversation and then suddenly you're, you know, you're coming up with new projects and ideas, and we don't want to lose that.
0: Yeah, I think, I mean, I think that makes a lot of sense that the culture, I mean, you can sustain it for time, but people do need to, and cohesion in the sense of an organization, people do need to be together some of the time. So if we focus in now on the shale industry, uh, this remarkable story, this industry, you know, it was what was driving the U.S. altogether to be at 13 million barrels a day in February, just before the, the, the pandemic really really swept around the world. Uh, how has the shale industry changed over as a result of this and and the changes you see in their business?
1: I think that what's going to change about the industry is there has to be a lot more consolidation. You have to create the scale necessary to optimize full cycle development. Economies of scale are very, very important in shale development. Otherwise, the good returns that you get on the uh, drilling and completion of the wells gets eroded by infrastructure. And the infrastructure includes oil, water, and gas gathering and separation. And water is a big part of that. And some people forget that uh, water infrastructure is costly. And so the smaller the scale, the more likely that an operator is going to have to do something with respect to consolidation. And you know, we're looking at a new model for shale development. And it's, it's, well, it's not that new to us, but it's, it would be new to the industry and that is to take advantage of the infrastructure that we have over time and where we have always tried to um, have our developments in areas where we have multiple benches. Because when we install the infrastructure, we like to spread that cost out over um, over multiple uh, benches. And we, we always design for maximum net present value and then the rate is an outcome of that. So production rate, production growth is always comes after we've done our best to to maximize the net present value. And now we're gonna be able to further optimize that with the application of CO2 and enhanced oil recovery to the shell process in the future. And this, our low carbon ventures strategy is going to help us do that. And so uh, for us, it's, it's now this opportunity to mitigate what people have so much concern about with the shale. Number one is the value and the low recoveries. And secondly, is the, uh, the fact that the decline is very hard to overcome and to grow over time. And, and so I, I think that this model for us is going to maximize the value and increase, increase actually the value over
0: what we had before. It's ironic, isn't it? Because of course, it was a lot of small companies that drove a lot of the opening up of it, and then it—it's like a generational change. It needs to move to that larger scale that you described. It is,
1: but the the good thing about the small players is the their ingenuity and their flexibility and their nimbleness, and um, some of the larger players won't have that. So some of the larger pri- players are going to have. Uh, more difficulty than I think they realize adjusting to the fact that every well is different. So you can't send an engineer out to do a well or have an engineer doing a well from Houston and following a a prescriptive process. You have to give your teams the flexibility to change designs on the fly. Even you're, even in the middle of a frack job. And that's not how some of the larger companies work. And if they don't adapt to that, they're not going to get the, the most value out of, out of the development of the
0: shell. So that's one of the things that you're going to try re- seek to retain even with the larger scale. Uh, what do you, you know, we heard so much in the campaign about banning fracking and so forth. Well, if you were out there and, you know, you you heard that, I mean, how do you respond to when you hear these things when you travel around to other parts of the country when you could travel about, uh, and you are traveling, what you hear about, kind of the environmental impacts of shale?
1: Well, I think that people don't, they can't separate water disposal with fracking, and they don't realize that uh, while frack jobs do change the stress regime around the well board, it's a very localized impact, and it goes away very quickly. It's not like the the saltwater disposal wells, where you could over time increase the stresses near well bore, and that could be large enough to potentially cause a seismic, a localized se- seismic event. So I think there's a lot of confusion about uh, what some people believe is happening. And some people even blame drilling for it, and then some people blame tracking for it. And then others uh, feel like they've proven that um, saltwater disposal wells do it. And I could see that logic a little better than the other two, but uh, the reality is I'm hearing about a lot of seismic events in areas where there is no hydrocarbon development at all. So all right. we, we're not really sure um, about what's causing all that, but I think that we have to be very careful as an industry to, to pay attention to the data and follow the data. And we're helping the uh, um, University of
0: Texas to get additional data so that we can really figure this out. Obviously, shale has gone, before these crises, uh, shale had really gone through an unprecedented scale of growth. Uh, How do you see growth proceeding now once vaccines are out there and uh, economic recovery has begun?
1: I think it's going to be hard for the shale uh, development in the U.S. to get U.S. production back to 13 million barrels a day, I think. I think that uh, now, especially as consolidation occurs and as people really focus on uh, re- full cycle returns and net present value of their developments, I think the economics is going to drive a lot of decisions to not do these smaller scale developments. And so I think that's going to it's going to take a while for the industry to rationalize out the, the smaller footprint companies and to help the, the ones that want to consolidate to get that scale so that development going forward does really generate a true return and, uh, and profitability. So I think that we uh, are going to stay pretty close to where we are today in terms of the production from the shale, might increase a little bit over time, but, um, but I don't expect um, there to be significant increases in the shale until there's more consolidation and then people can get their their uh, regroup
0: and get their plans together. Uh, you talk to a lot of investors. Do you find the attitude towards of investors towards shale uh, changing?
1: Oh yes, <laughs> it's um it's very very interesting. Uh, there was a time when uh, you know we have a diverse portfolio and we have we love our Middle East assets and uh, we had Columbia assets which we're now divesting, but but we had a lot, a lot of other places we could put our capital dollars and it, it was like any time we mentioned investment in anything other than the shell our our shareholders got upset about it and so now i think that um this will help us to to have more flexibility and it and it's going to help help us to have that conversation that matters and, and that is while the, some of the other opportunities are conventional and they're not going to grow as fast but they're also not going to decline as fast so when you look at the capital intensity of conventional low decline development versus high decline shell the shell pays back right away but over time that lower decline uh, the capital intensity is actually lower over time in and, and a lot of our other projects and so we're we're happy to have the flexibility to to have an alternative, but with respect to the shell, we do believe though that our enhanced oil recovery puts us in a unique position to uh, to make it almost seem closer to a low decline kind right. of an asset, and I think ultimately that's going to
0: deliver the most value out of the shell. Well, you you've talked about consolidation. Uh, you went through a process of consolidation with Anadarko. Uh, we're how does that stand now, and, and how does it look, and what did you learn from it?
1: Um, well, we we're excited about um, what we've been able to accomplish with it. Uh, timing wasn't great, but, um, but our teams are working hard to get the value out of it. In fact, we in less than uh, seven months after the close of the acquisition, we had already more than, uh, than exceeded the, the synergy target that we had set for OPEX and for dNA And we've uh, we have also, uh, we're also ahead of schedule with respect to the divestitures. We had said that we would sell 10 to $15 billion of assets within 12 to 24 months. We're now well on our way to exceed uh, $10 billion before uh, the end of Q1 or by mid year next year. So we're, we're on track to do that. And what's probably, the worst M&A market ever in our industry to try to accomplish that, but, but we're well on our way to doing it. And the other thing is around the CapEx efficiency. And it was the CapEx that drove our modeling to uh, enable us to feel really comfortable about um, what we could do with the Anadarko assets. And we captured those synergies very early on. And, in fact, we not only captured the synergies of of the lower drilling cost and completion cost on the Anadarko acreage matching what we were doing on our own acreage, Um, We, when we shut down rigs and recently started picking up rigs, on the very second well that uh, that we had our first rig on, after it had been shut down, we were right back on track. So we lost no ground with the shutdown. And in our industry, that's really unheard of.
0: One thing also that's distinctive about uh, Oxy is that you are one of the two largest exporters of crude oil from the United States. Uh, How do you see that business developing? And, uh, you know, this is fairly new. It's very new for the United States to be an exporter of crude oil.
1: It's very new. You know, and and exports in the United States have gotten up to about 3 million barrels a day, and and now they've dropped to about 2 to 2.5 million barrels a day. Uh, we are exporting about 500 to 600 thousand uh, barrels a day uh, through our um, through the terminal at Ingleside that we actually built and then later sold. So we believe that um, the U.S. will continue to be a swing uh, exporter uh, as as uh, crudes are needed around the world. And the um, WTI is actually a good substitute for Merban and Arab Extra Light, and WTL is a good sub for Arab Super Light. So we had the opportunity to to send barrels to Asia and to fill requirements that that they need over there, and uh, we've been doing a lot of that. A lot of our barrels are going to Asia now, and I, I think that with the new Mervin pricing that uh, that's now managed by ICE um, that Adnoc had promoted, that gives us a marker that we believe is going to enable us to to get more. Um, more per barrel than we had been getting otherwise, and, and otherwise we had been getting more than, than what you can get onshore for some of the
0: um, WT, WTI crudes. Of course, people think of uh, Oxy as an oil and gas and chemicals company, uh, but you also have another way of thinking about it as a carbon management company. And uh, I think you're really at the forefront of the entire industry in thinking through Kind of a, a, an integrated carbon strategy. Um, maybe, I mean, before going into a couple of the specifics, just how did the thought processes? How did how did this evolve? I mean, uh, you know, I think it's it's really quite striking.
1: Well, it happened about ten years ago. We started thinking about it. We've been now uh, in in CO two enhanced oil recovery for about forty years. So that's the the our CO two projects were really the foundation of our company. And so they've been important to us for a long time. We were trying to figure out a way to ensure the sustainability of our enhanced oil recovery using CO2. And not only the sustainability, but how do we lower the costs? So 10 years ago, we started thinking about trying to move away from organic CO2 for those projects to anthropogenic CO2. So we started working on trying to modify 45Q And uh, as much as we talked about it, we couldn't get any traction. But then with uh, Senator Heidi Heitkamp from North Dakota, she was interested. She knows a lot about carbon capture. And she started introducing some legislation. And we became a part of a coalition that had a a number of uh, environmental groups in it and uh, policymakers and power companies. And we were initially the only oil company that was a part of it. And we we uh, teamed together and collaborated to, to get to help uh, Senator Hyde-Camp get 45Q passed, yeah, so it's on now.
0: Let me just ask you: you better explain what 45Q is to the people who don't. Yeah, 45Q is yeah.
1: It's it's now it's it's called the Future Act, and what it does is provides tax credits for CO2 sequestration or CO2 use and enhanced oil recovery. So there's a different price uh, for each of those, but But you get the tax credit for either, but only if you get an MRV plan in place with EPA. And so the IRS won't let you take the tax credit without that MRV plan. And so we were able to take that. Oh, okay. Vicki,
0: what's an MRV plan? So
1: so an MRV plan is a monitoring, reporting, and verification plan. And what EPA makes you do with that plan is ensure that the CO2 is actually captured and that you're monitoring that CO2 to ensure that it stays. Captured
0: underground, right? And so, this tax credit, the forty-five Q, is really similar to the tax credits—the concept to what's been provided to renewable energy, uh, to wind and solar. So, just uh, using the same approach. Yes. So, but you know, you've gone a lot farther now. You talk about being a carbon management company, and I think carbon-neutral oil and uh, you've taken a lot of steps in that and a very comprehensive plan. Can you identify the key elements? Because I think this will be very new to a lot of people.
1: Yes, as we, as we got to the point where we realized that, um, that based on modeling, there was no way to cap global warming at 2 degrees without a significant amount of carbon capture. So that was an IEA model. And so we we then realized that there was the opportunity for us to to go further with our with our anthropogenic uh, plan and to actually make um, make it into a business. And we saw that there are other industries that need a way to lower their carbon footprint, and without some way to purchase uh, CO two credits or to partner in in a sequestration and or a CO two use. Uh, project they they can't otherwise do it and so there's only so so far you can go with efficiency so as we started going down that path we saw a lot of opportunity to not only become carbon neutral ourselves but to help others do the same thing and where we got the idea of a what what our team initially called green oil was to uh, was that the fact that it takes more CO2 injected into the reservoir uh, to uh, than the barrel of oil that's produced from that CO2 emits when burned? So that the fact that more injected um, and less burned means that you know you're either carbon neutral or negative. So and it really depends on the reservoir as to how much CO2 um, right. offset difference there is between the injection and the and the uh, emission. So. so- so we're excited about it. It's uh we we have the interest. We actually have we get a lot of incoming calls that from companies that are interested in partnering on that.
0: Well, uh to introduce one other set of initials, there's a thing called in, in your plans called DAC, which stands for direct air capture. And um that's a key part of it and it's a major technology and one that uh that Oxy is scaling up right now. So how does that work and how does that look
1: well we um we're actually building going to build what would now be the largest direct air capture facility in Permian Basin and we expect to start on that late 20 uh 2022 or early 2023 and uh direct air capture is a process that just pulls CO2 out of the atmosphere and the, the great thing about what we're doing there is uh, there's a lot of a lot of really good things. I get excited about this is that uh, when you pull the CO2 out of the air, uh, it's really it's potassium hydroxide that you use as a part of the process to separate the CO2 from the air. And we're the largest producer, our chemicals business is, of uh, potassium hydroxide in the U.S., second largest in the world. So you, ha- you have a synergy there with our chemicals business. This direct air capture uh, facility then – Uh, spits off a pure stream of CO2, almost pure, that we could use in our reservoirs, so it enables us to increase oil production while taking advantage of our OxyChem synergies with the potassium hydroxide. The other synergy that we have with OxyChem is that the plant will require a lot of PVC, and we make PVC. There's that, so, and some people look at direct air capture and say, oh, no, you can't make that work, but... What they forget is that other kinds of carbon capture are re- are not normally right there where your re- your reservoir is. So you have to have the carbon capture plus a pipeline. With this carbon capture, we can set it direct air capture. We can set it right by our existing infrastructure, and we don't have the expense of a pipeline to get it where it needs to be, either sequestered or used. So taking that pipeline expense away and including the synergies we have with oxychem. In uh, the products that, need to, that it needs to have to be built and to run uh, makes it, a, a for us, a, a great project. And we're excited about it. So, so what should people
0: <laughs> visualize? I, I mean, the diagrams I've seen show giant fans, basically, that, know, is. that pulls the CO2.
1: Yeah, that pulls the atmosphere in. And once the CO2 is separated, then, then the air is spit out and goes back to the atmosphere uh, cleaner. Uh, so it's there's nothing in this facility that we 're building that 's not in you some other way so they there are huge fans, but I forget the number but um even with those huge uh fans, the footprint for a direct air capture facility is a lot lower than the footprint if you tried to do it with with trees or forestation right, right. so it's um it's still a relatively lower footprint
0: so is this a technology that you're that you partly own or that you help to develop
1: no we are yeah we're we are a part owner of carbon engineering and carbon engineering bills uh this director they they have the patent on the construction of the um direct air capture so we are part owner there we partnered with rasheen who's a private equity group that's uh, more familiar with technology-type developments. And uh, so they're uh, partnering with them. We, we created a subsidiary called 1.5. It's called 1.5 because we want to be a part of the effort to limit global warming to 1.5. So this partnership now is, uh, is we've, we've launched it. Um, we're working with uh, investors and other interested parties to advance this and to first get it done in the Permian,
0: then we can do it anywhere. So 1.5, do you, I mean, uh, right now, as I've said, you've seen as an oil, gas and uh, chemical company, do you, but you've talked, if you look down the road, do you see yourself as an integrated carbon management company or, I mean, how, how does this all fit together?
1: I think ultimately, um, and I don't know how many years from now, but I think ultimately uh, Occidental becomes a carbon management company. Our oil and gas would be a support business unit for the the management of that carbon. And um, we would be not only um, using it in oil reservoirs, the CO2, capturing it for sequestration as well. So we would be doing both. And. And I expect that in the not-too-distant future that, we'd, that our OxyChem business will also be involved in some way to use CO2 in products that they make. So we'd have three ways to, to manage the CO2, and with both OxyChem and the oil and gas business being a support for that. Because so I believe
0: this, this industry is going to be huge. Right. So it's really carbon capture, use and storage, and the use of right. part of it as well. Well, that's a very powerful vision and uh, represents uh, a lot of thought and uh, and strategic effort has gone into it. And that will unfold over the years. Let me, as a last question, just ask you near term, uh, very near term. We'll shortly have a new administration with a different different posture on uh, energy and climate and so forth. And just your thinking and messages about uh, what the nature of the dialogue and interaction should
1: be. With President-elect Biden, I do believe we have the opportunity to collaborate with him. They want to have a, um, a climate story, and I believe that uh, our climate story and what we want to do uh, could match um, very well with, with what they're trying to accomplish. So I, I believe that at least on, on one point, we're going we're gonna to be aligned. And we can collaborate, and we can hopefully make things happen um, on other issues. We we want to be there with uh, with the EPA and the BLM as they will certainly, almost certainly, introduce more regulation on the industry. Uh, and we don't have a problem with that because a lot of what's been recommended in the past that that ultimately didn't get um um it didn't get installed or started. Uh, kicked off in, in terms of practicality, a lot of that we are doing anyway. So uh, it's we think that there's some middle ground that we can that we can achieve here if we are proactive in dealing with both of the all, all the regulatory agencies and doing it early on, uh, making sure that they have to they have to put some regulation in. So we need to just make it something that um, that's effective but reasonable.
0: You wanted your thoughts about methane in particular, because that certainly seems to be one of the hottest issues right now.
1: Right. It's it's methane. It's the, the methane rules that um, really didn't get enacted previously, um, and we were heading down a path we we felt like with EPA that um, that we could come up with something that was reasonable, but something that was still you know, still did what it needed to do.
0: So uh, we we think we can continue to work with them. Right, well, Vicki Holland, thank you very much for joining us for this series Week conversation. We've talked about uh, oil and uh, the, re- the resurgence in the in shale and how that will take place. Uh, talked about uh, the changes, of course, that uh, Oxy itself has gone through, and then the questions of uh, carbon management with a, a very comprehensive approach uh, that's uh, sort of a covers the entire range of, of it and then, you know, what's ahead in the next few months. So uh, thank you very much, Vicki Holland, for joining us for this Sarah Week conversation.
1: Thank you, Dan. Appreciate it.
0: Thanks again for tuning in to another CIRA Week conversation presented by IHS Market. For the complete video series and previous episodes, visit us online at CIRAweek.com.